Good morning. I have a quiz for you this morning. It's a little early. Some of you thought you'd already graduated. But I want you to think about these things and evaluate kind of where you fall. And it's more of a spectrum. It's not a only this or only that. The bathroom stops up in the house, and you wait to see who's going to go take care of it. Maybe your husband, your wife, one of the older children. More likely to do that or to go fix it yourself. Again, don't answer out loud. Just kind of think about this in your mind. You've gone out to eat, or maybe your wife cooked your favorite piece of pie, your favorite dessert, whatever it may be. Notice I said pie, not cake. But uh, cook whatever it is that's your favorite, and it's sitting out. There's one piece left. You see it, and you know there's a couple of others who might enjoy it as well. Are you more likely to go ahead and grab it or leave it for others? It's been a long day. You're going to the post office to mail something. You see that there's already a line formed. You see somebody else reaching the door about the same time you do. Do you stop and grab the door for them, or do you hurry through so that you don't get further in line? Someone receives special praise or reward, and you know you worked just as hard as that person, and yet nothing comes your way. Do you become embittered, or do you rejoice and encourage that person who is also receiving that praise? Here's one for the children. Mom or dad takes your brother or sister out somewhere. Are you happy for them, or are you upset that you got left behind? These type of questions begin to reveal a little bit about our heart motives. And I realize we probably fall somewhere on the spectrum. Depends how long I, since I've had that dessert, right? But I think it reveals a lot about our heart and our motivations. And our text this morning does something similar. Is it begins to reveal and to help expose our desire for self-aggrandizement, that is, self-praise, self, um, maybe it's financial, maybe it's some other form of selfishness and putting yourself first. If you haven't already turned there, you can turn to Matthew 20 as we, so we reach the end of this chapter. Last week we observed as James and John had sought to elevate themselves above the other disciples when it came to ruling and reigning in the kingdom of God. You remember the story where Jesus is talking to the disciples. They've just heard that the, a rich young ruler, one who has fastidiously followed the law of God, who is wealthy, and remember wealth was in the time of Jesus, the, the Jews, and actually it wasn't just at that time, for centuries. They had always seen wealth and prosperity as a sign of God's blessing on their life. And so if this person could not inherit the kingdom of God, then what hope did they have? So they quickly asked, confused, what hope is there? And Jesus said, even though you may have appeared to have done less to enter, you don't have the same wealth, you haven't done the same things, he gave them a promise that far exceeded their expectations, that they would rule and reign with them. He says, not just you, it's everyone who has left father or mother who has come after me, receive far more than they could ever 
ask or think. And then he went into a parable concerning the workers who were hired at different times during the day and the jealousy that began to creep in for those who were hired earlier who had got the wages that they expected to be paid, but it was the same amount as those who were hired later. And rather than rejoicing that they too would be able to eat that day, they grumbled and complained that they did not receive more. And then last week we were perhaps surprised, if you hadn't seen the story before, at the response of James and John, who manipulate their mother into helping ask for a special arrangement to be seated at the right and the left hand of the throne of Christ in the coming kingdom. This is right after Jesus had said he was going to die, he was going to be buried, and that he would rise again the third day. Somewhat tone deaf to that proclamation, they make this request, and we begin looking at Jesus' response, and we see the end of his response here in these verses. And I'm going to go and read verses 24 through the end of the chapter. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It must not be this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Let's pray. Fathers, we look at this text this morning as we contemplate, as we contemplate our own sinful desires, our own selfishness. I pray that you would help to convict us, to reprove us, to instruct us in your word, that we would grow up in all aspects into the image of Christ, that we would follow his example of being a servant to all. In your name, amen. As I noted last week, we observed the start of James and John trying to elevate themselves above these other disciples. And you really do have to wonder at their boldness, if that's what it can be called, because it's really a boldness combined with spiritual blindness or short-sightedness. They become so myopic, that is short-sighted, that they seem to have completely missed everything else that Jesus had just said, especially that he was going to die, be buried, and would rise again. They heard throne, kingdom, rule, and nothing else. The significance of the parable that Jesus shared concerning the reward of the workers hired at different times of the day went right past them. And so we find them violating the very principle that Jesus was trying to teach, that greatness in the kingdom of God is not found in being first. 
It's not measured the way we measure greatness in this world. Greatness in God's kingdom is measured very differently. And this morning, as we continue with the rest of this interaction, we realize that while James and John were the ones to speak up, all of the disciples had missed the message, or at least the meaning of the message. Look there at verse 24 that we've read. The rest of the disciples, what does it say? They became indignant with the brothers. And we understand this. We've had siblings, friends, others who have sought something, have done something to try and elevate themselves when you don't think they should be elevated above you. And you've responded with maybe frustration, maybe even not vocally, but you've thought it. So humanly speaking, we understand this. We understand why they're upset. But the irony here is that they're being upset, they're being indignant, them being angry reveals that they had the exact same misunderstanding about greatness. They just hadn't spoken up first. They were upset with the idea that James and John would rule over them. They can't fathom their peers being elevated to a position above them. They still think highly of themselves, at least highly enough that none of these guys should rule over me. So what would the right response have been to that situation? To the ten, if they were to rightly respond at hearing that James and John had sought this elevated position of leadership, what would have been the right response? Well, the right response would have been sorrow over the fact that James and John had so misunderstood Jesus. But instead, we find anger or indignation. And we've seen what can happen with this type of anger, haven't we? Think back to your Old Testament, the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph. Joseph, that dreamer who, on two separate occasions, at least two that are recorded, had dreams where his brothers, and not only his brothers, but his father and mother, bowed down to him and served him. And you may remember the bitter jealousy of the brothers who, upon hearing Joseph's dream that he would rule over them, began to plot at how they would dispose of him. Eventually settling instead for selling him to Midianite traders who would take Joseph down to Egypt as a slave. Well, not letting things develop that far, or the jealousy to take root, Jesus steps in and he rebukes the entire group of disciples. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more stinging rebuke than to compare a Jew to a Gentile, and that's exactly what he does. It meant far more than just ethnicity. This is not some racial slur. This is, there is much that is packed into what in the Jewish mind was a Gentile. A Gentile was one who was spiritually blind. It was one who had no knowledge of God, who acted contrary to the ways of God in every facet of their life. They were outside of the promises of God. They were outside the covenant of God. They were outside of the hope of ever being in God's kingdom. So Jesus says, you're acting like those who are under God's wrath. You're acting like those who are separated from God. That's who you're behaving like. And that statement, some of your Bibles may read it is, or translations, it is not this way among you, is actually in the future. It's better translated as a wish or a desire. It's, it should not be or let it not be this way among you. 
similar to how a parent might say to their children, you are going to clean this room. No. It's stated in the future with the full expectation that it come to pass. Do not let it be this way. Instead, let it be this way among you. The expectation is crystal clear. This, instead, is what a disciple looks like. And it's different than how you are acting right now. And what is it? Well, he says, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And again, I can't help but be reminded of the story of Joseph. Joseph, in God's plan, became a what? A slave. A slave first, so that he might eventually become ruler over all of Egypt. A true disciple must become a servant first. And in case that wasn't clear enough, Jesus says not only a servant, but a slave. One who has few, if any, rights. When serving, especially a household slave, they would first ensure that the entire family had been fed and cared for and received everything they need before they would even take a bite to eat. Their needs came absolutely last. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. It's nothing more, nothing less. Your needs need to come last when you think about yourself. Unless they feel that this was a lot to be asked of them, Jesus says, no matter how low you think you're humbling yourself, in verse 28, the Son of Man has gone further. How far has the Son of Man gone? Well, there's a lot to unpack in this one verse. First off, the Son of Man, that is, the Son who existed at creation, did not come, by the way, there is at least a hint, if not something a little bit louder to the pre-existence of Christ, that He existed beforehand, as Paul says in Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant, came and entered into this world. He existed before he was born. So just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He sets up his life as a ransom, that concept of substitutionary atonement. Nor is it stated so crystal clearly. We see it exemplified, but nor is it stated so clearly as this one verse. A ransom for many. A payment for the many. Jesus says this is what true greatness looks like. It's the life that I am living, having emptied myself, come down as I've lowered myself from heaven to earth to the point of death, even death on the cross, on behalf of all who would believe. The simple but clear rebuke to the disciples is this. If you struggle to serve others, you need to look to the example of Christ. If you struggle in humbling yourself, if you struggle in thinking of others wrongly or getting jealous or envious, you need to remember Christ. Christ. 
We've talked about this before. It's when we take our eyes off of Christ, when we take our eyes off of God, it's at that moment that we find ourselves slipping into all sorts of sin. And this is one of those. The moment we take our eyes off of Christ, off of serving Him, off of loving Him, off of praising Him and thanking Him for what He has done, then it becomes a whole lot harder to serve others. If you really want the secret of serving others broken down or simplified to its most common factor, it's keep your eyes on Christ. Follow Christ's example. And we'll talk about a little more of what that looks like. And what I like is having made one of the most profound statements regarding what the work of Christ, Christ dying on the cross, accomplishes. In verse 28, Matthew immediately follows up this history-altering statement with a story of Jesus healing. It's almost like he can't keep his mind on one track. I mean, he's just made this profound statement about what salvation entails, how Christ dying on the cross bore our sins, took them from us, echoing back to Isaiah 53, and then he jumps right away to, by the way, there were these two guys, they were blind, and he healed them. What's going on here? Why does he jump to that story? What is the connection? Is there a connection here? Well, you know I don't think it's an accident. There's at least two important lessons from this event that reiterate what Jesus is teaching the disciples. Matthew notes that they're leaving Jericho. This is on the way to Jerusalem from Galilee. So Matthew is connecting it to the previous section. Remember, they were preparing to make their way to Jerusalem. He's tying it in that this is, this is part of that same trip. In addition, by being so specific, he ties it to a specific event that took place in a location and in a time in history. And what we learn in this brief little section is that despite being blind, these two blind men actually see, at least spiritually, better than most. They recognize Jesus' authority and identity where others have missed it entirely. The religious leaders can't seem to wrap their heads around who Jesus really is. The disciples, are, having been with them for all of this time, are still struggling. They and yet these two that he encounters, they know he is the promised son of David, the Messiah. They've heard that in the drawing near of God's kingdom through the person of Jesus Christ, there has been a lessening of the effects of the curse. He has been healing and turning back the curse as the kingdom of God has drawn near. And so what do they want to do? Well, they want to draw near to Jesus. And so we see there is that large crowd was following him, two blind men sitting on the road, hearing Jesus was passing by, begin to cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. That term son of David, we again remember is that messianic promise of the king who would turn back the effects of the curse, the promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent. And so they cry out with this wonderful proclamation, this theological proclamation about who Jesus is, and how does the crowd respond? 
Well, they respond in the most merciless, cold-hearted way possible. Here are the two blind men. There is Jesus who can heal them, but the crowd would prefer that these blind men remain in their state rather than being healed by Christ. You realize how cold-hearted they are? The lack of mercy and compassion could not be greater than what this crowd showed toward these men. They become a stumbling block if they could. They want to put themselves between these men and experiencing Christ's saving work, His healing work. Be quiet, they say. Stop calling out, they say. He doesn't have time for you, they say. And we see this and we stand away from that crowd because we think we can never be like them. And yet I think we are much more like that crowd than we realize. When we fail to share the gospel, we are in essence silencing the ears, silencing the cries of those who need to be saved. When through the way we live, we become a hindrance to the gospel. When we fail to serve others, we fail to show mercy and compassion. This crowd didn't care about these blind men. They didn't care about their state. Are we too preoccupied with the things of our life, what we have going, what we want to do, what we want to accomplish, that we can't serve others, that we don't preach the gospel, that we can't be inconvenienced? To their credit, the blind men would not be deterred. They call out all the louder. They will not be silenced. And it's this importunity, this insistence that attracts the attention of Jesus. So Jesus stops and calls to them and asks, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do? If this sounds familiar, it should. It's actually the first part. It's exactly what James and John's mother said when she came with them in tow to make their selfish request. Jesus asked then, what do you wish? What do you wish? What do you want done? And here's the same, what do you wish for me to do to you or for you? But notice the contrast that now reveals itself between the blind beggars and these disciples who had witnessed the transfiguration, James and John. Instead of asking for power and authority like those disciples, they seek only to have their eyes open that they may follow Christ. Their response here in Matthew clearly implies great faith. That they would call out to him, cry out to him, and continue crying out. Mark, in sharing his record of this account, actually just focused on one of the blind beggars. It's actually, he names him. His name was Bartimaeus. He was known in the town. And Mark goes on to further note, not only Jesus' response, but Jesus' acknowledgement and recognition of the great faith of the blind beggars. Matthew probably doesn't describe this because his focus is upon the Messiah, upon the power and the authority of the Son of David to heal and reverse the effects of the curse of sin and the drawing near of the kingdom of God. 
But it's clear, regardless, whether implied or stated, that their healing, in verse 34, that in that healing they had great faith which resulted in a desire to follow after Christ. And the healing we see is instantaneous. But it is the great mercy and compassion of Christ that is really so remarkable here. Here is the great and sovereign creator, the ruler over creation, the promised king of the world, and he stops what he is doing to serve and to care for two blind beggars. That's how this connects. That's how this ties in. This is a perfectly clear illustration of what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. And Matthew uses it when he is called that great king, when he is called that son of David, that promised Messiah, to illustrate what true greatness looks like. And this should have rebuked the disciples and offended their sensibilities. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus did not use his great power to save himself from death. He did not use it to overthrow the Romans. He did not use it for his own wealth or the accumulation of wealth. He used it for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to serve. It is so contrary to the religious leaders and the pretenders of Jesus' day who would have been in a hurry to move on, to only focus on those who could somehow help them. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Who might have responded financially to their teachings or would help better their reputation. I mean, what do you have to gain from two blind beggars? Jesus, on the other hand, responds to the poor, to the needy, to the outcast, and he demonstrates great compassion and mercy. By the way, one of the ways to determine whether a person is worth following, especially when it comes to leadership in the church, is whether or not they demonstrate mercy and compassion. If leaders are so occupied with programs, with teaching, or making a name for themselves, or building something, that they cannot stop and demonstrate compassion and mercy, then be wary of those leaders. The church doesn't need strong, charismatic leaders or businessmen or strong personalities. The church needs those who faithfully teach and faithfully imitate Christ's compassion and mercy. It needs those and it needs Disciples in the church, all of us, who put others before themselves, who are willing to set aside our preferences and be inconvenienced in showing mercy and compassion and caring for others. To be inconvenienced in what my opinion is, what I want to accomplish, and instead look for how we serve others. This really ties well into when I know a study this morning in the Adult Fellowship Sunday School in Romans 14 of considering and preferring and caring for the weaker. And there's really a wonderful illustration for us in the lives of these blind beggars. And while I don't necessarily agree with attempts to allegorize this passage, I do think we can see and appreciate the reminders it provides of what true discipleship looks like. Because it pictures and at least reminds us 
that prior to Christ passing by in our lives, we are worthless, as worthless, as blind as these beggars, blind to the things of God, spiritually stumbling about, ready at any moment to step over the cliff of eternity into the terrifying judgment of God. But Jesus passes by. And as we've been reminded so frequently through the gospel of Matthew, he will not turn away any who come to him crying out for mercy, confessing their sins. This passage provides a wonderful reminder of what salvation and discipleship looks like. In having our spiritual eyes opened, of receiving sight so that we might follow the Lord. John 9.39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see, and he's speaking, talking spiritually here, those whose eyes and awareness of who God is and who Christ is are blind, so that those who do not see, they may see might remove the blindness. And that those who do see or think they can see, who are spiritually arrogant and proud, who have not demonstrated that poverty of spirit, that they may become blind. That's why Jesus came into the world. Yes, these healings are important because they demonstrate who he is and they demonstrate his power. They demonstrate that he is the Messiah. They demonstrate that he is the king. It demonstrates that the kingdom has drawn near. But the end goal is that the people for whom he came to give his life as a ransom for many would repent of their sins. They would humble themselves and that their eyes would be opened. And for those of us that have received sight, our mission is to now serve others. Not to build a kingdom for ourselves. Not to accumulate treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but to serve to consider ourselves as more, no more than a slave and to demonstrate the mercy and the compassion of Christ. This passage presents us with the temporary blindness of the disciples or the short-sightedness of the disciples and their selfish desires. They're craving to be served, to be elevated in positions of authority. And Jesus says this is not at all what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. Not at all. And so the question for you this morning, thinking back to those questions I asked right at the beginning, is do you really believe that this is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like? Do you really believe that to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to humble yourself and serve others and put the needs of others before yourself? The word of God is clear. How will you respond? Will you imitate Christ? Let's get practical for a minute. What would it look like to be a servant and a slave and not try to be served? Well, for one, no job would be beneath you. It doesn't mean you don't be wise and a good steward of your time and abilities, but you show compassion and mercy. It's never beneath you to go grab the trash, to help open the door for someone to find ways to serve and to care for them. If you really believe this is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like, then you are going to actively be looking at how can I serve others? Not thinking what can I get, not keeping a tally of, well, they've served me three times, I've served them four, I'm waiting on them first. 
It's not competing over praise. It's not needing to receive honor. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17, verse 10. Really, it means making this your life's verse. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, those who followed him, said, So you too, when you do all the things which, I have, which are commanded you, it's everything I've instructed you, everything that God is, puts in front of you, this is how you respond. It's not, hey, guess what? I, I did everything. I'm ready for my reward. It's not, can I be seated on your right or left? No, he says, this is our response. I'm going to personalize it. I am an unworthy slave. I have done only what I should have done. Nothing more. Only what I should have done. And that's if I do everything. If I do all that has been commanded, everything that has been commanded, I can only say I've only done what I should have done because I'm a slave. That's how you'll respond if you really believe this is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. And you'll know it because you'll know how do you respond when someone else receives praise? Do you rejoice for them? Do you encourage them? Or do you get that pit in your stomach and that frustration and that angst and try to find some way for someone to recognize you too? This is a hard thing to do. This is not easy. It runs completely counter to everything that is in the natural man. It's everything that the flesh, it's the exact opposite of what the flesh wants to do. The flesh wants to be praised. The flesh wants to be first. I mean, just look all around us. All of the descriptions around self-help and self-care. It's, you gotta take care of yourself first. If you really believe this is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like, you'll reject that and follow the example of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning, so clear and so specific in how we are to imitate you and what true greatness in the kingdom looks like. Help us, Father, as this is a difficult thing to do, Help us to just begin taking the steps day by day, repenting where we fail, but working day by day to become more selfless, to become more of a servant, more of a slave, to think more highly of others, to put the needs of others before ourselves, to not get upset when we don't get our way, to not get upset when someone else receives the praise, to not think selfishly, to not react and respond selfishly. Help us to create new patterns, new habits, and new desires that are in accordance with your will. In your name, amen.